I'm Jacob Kinberg, and you're listening to Salty Cinema. My guest today is Nashville-based filmmaker, musician, and record producer Steve Taylor. Taylor came to prominence in the 80s as an eclectic recording artist, selling over one million albums worldwide and earning two Grammy nominations. In 2006, he made his feature film debut as director, co-writer, and producer of The Second Chance for Sony Pictures. His second film, Blue Like Jazz, followed in 2012 and was released by Roadside Attractions. Taylor currently serves on the faculty of Lipscomb University's School of Cinematic Arts. Here is my conversation with Steve Taylor. Can you tell me what the Nashville film scene is like? You've been here 30 years. Yeah, the Nashville film scene is, uh, when I got here almost 30 years ago, was definitely a fledgling. Um, my friend Coke Sams is, uh, is sort of like the mayor of the film scene here, and he ended up uh, being a producer on both the movies I made. Uh, when I met him, he was doing the Ernest movies. So like Ernest uh, Scared yeah. Stupid and Ernest Saves Christmas. Yeah. Uh, all those were done with an actor, Jim Varney, who was in Nashville, and uh, he and Coke worked together along with a uh, kind of the producer money mastermind was a guy named uh, Joel Cherry, who uh, uh, what they did was really pretty remarkable because this uh, this character that Jim Varney did named uh, Vern, I think, ended up doing all these commercials where they would customize them for whatever city they were in. And um, they kind of created an industry just based around his persona. And then I think maybe that turned into some kind of a... Uh, maybe a, a TV show for a while, but they ended up getting a deal with Disney to do these uh, Ernest movies. Yeah. And uh, and they were, you know, really successful and uh, and went going for, they kept going for a long time. Uh, Jim Varney, I want to say, died like about 10 years ago. But um, uh, that really is, you know, so much of the Nashville film industry can be traced back to those origins and uh, it's certainly grown since then with uh, country music and videos and mm. then gospel music really kind of moved its headquarters to Nashville probably 30-ish years ago. And, uh, and so a lot of it has kind of expanded based on uh, the music industry. Um, and then there have been some film incentives that have come and gone that help things. I was able to make both uh, my movies um, – in Nashville primarily, uh, and that helped. Um, and then the, the TV show Nashville has been a, a big boon as well, and now there's some more TV being done. So on the on the feature side, there isn't a lot going on. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, it's really simple. It's uh, state incentives. Uh, if you go to Georgia, uh, south of Georgia, I think they're offering like 35% income tax rebate or something like that. Um, and in fact, I was in L.A. not too long ago and, you know, just said, how's business in town? And they said, I don't know, ask Atlanta, because so much stuff is being shot in Atlanta. Right. Um, and, of course, producers tend to go where the incentives are. So uh, Georgia and uh, Louisiana still, I think, gets a lot. Uh, Tennessee doesn't have a state income tax, which makes it appealing 
for other reasons, but they don't really have that to dip into when they try to figure out a film incentives package. Mm-hmm. So it's just not the same here. And you are currently a artist in residence at Lipscomb University, right? Yeah. So uh, when I finished Blue Light Jazz, um, I was just thinking in terms of, uh, man, I would like to go back to school and get a proper grad degree in filmmaking. Mm. Um, I'd studied it in college, but it was more like a, a minor, and everything else that I'd learned has been had just been through trial and error. And, uh, you know, film school has become more and more of a thing. Uh, it wasn't a thing when I was first starting out, but now you could, you know, argue for a really good education and going to film school. The problem was I was going to have to go to New York or Chicago or uh, Florida would be the closest places to get a, an MFA in filmmaking. And uh, Lipscomb University here in town uh somehow we ended up meeting up and they said they wanted to start a grad film program um, before they even started an undergrad program. Would I want to essentially assemble the airplane while I was flying it? (laughs) And so it was like too good of an offer to pass up. And um, uh, so I actually was hiring the professors while I was taking their classes, which <laughs> wow. is, you know, a terrible conflict of interest if you're a professor who's got to grade me. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, and and then I was their filmmaker residence at the same time. So mm-hmm. they had me, uh, you know, making stuff uh, primarily was my main reason to be here. And uh, and it's ended up being a really good uh, thing. The, the, the college um, wasn't particularly known for being in the arts. Um, uh, but uh, the guy who who wanted to start the film program, uh, Mike Fernandez, was had headed up the theater department, and the theater department had turned into a really good department. It it, it, it had been back in the day, and then it kind of fell off the map a bit. Mark uh, Mike came in and really uh, revitalized it, and I saw some of their shows. It's like, wow, this is actually quite impressive, and he felt like uh, you know it was time to create a film school. And then uh, he had an idea for creating a like a music school, like more of contemporary music. And he asked me what I thought, and I said, "I think that's a terrible idea, unless we could bring someone like Charlie Peacock on to start it." But I don't think he would be available. And I called Charlie. I guess I got him on a good day, and now he's running the uh, the music school, and wow. it's doing great. So uh, Tom Bancroft has started a, an animation program here. He's uh, uh, a Disney animator, you know, was going to Cal Arts, got hired by Disney during that kind of second renaissance with the Lion King and, you know, Beauty and the Beast and mm-hmm. Mulan and Pocahontas and Hercule- Hercules, all those uh, great uh, animated shows uh, at Aladdin. Uh, so now he's running the animation department and it's wow. it's actually turned into a really <clears throat> vibrant uh arts community at the same time that Nashville has become a, a really great place for mm. the arts. Yeah, it's, I mean, as far as I know, it's the only uh, grad program that uh, that's part of a, a Christian university, right? And, and the only grad program in Nashville, period. Right. Yeah, when it started, it was the only one in, in this region. Um, since then, Watkins University has added okay. an MFA. And... Um, and then as far as other Christian universities go, I, I'm, I'm not aware of, there may be other others that I'm not aware of, but it's a, That's really cool. it's a pretty small, uh, it's a, it's, there's not a lot 
of other programs like it. Hmm. So you're speaking of, of music. That's that's your bread and butter. That's where you you came up in music. Yes. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah. I went to college studying um, music and uh, with like a minor in filmmaking. Hmm. And you know, at the time, the uh, the joke was like either one of those. Uh, studies on their own was like the zero job prospect degree, but then you combine them and it creates uh, a future unemployment vortex. And um, <laughs> from that eventually emerges a, a beautiful uh, barista. But, um, you know, I dared to dream. And uh, uh, and when I got out of college, I thought I, I really loved filmmaking, but I just thought I would be probably better to be in a a band in my 20s and a filmmaker in my 50s than the reverse. So I figured I'll start in music and eventually migrate to film and was able to find enough filmmaking opportunities as a recording artist to kind of keep one foot in. Mm. So talk about the the beginnings of, of your music career. What, what was the first, uh, first band you started? So uh, my dad is a pastor. And so one great thing about church life is, you know, most churches have a lot of music going on. And so I was around music all the time. My dad's actually a, a really fantastic singer. And um, so music was just kind of all around. And I was I was good at uh, kind of had a natural knack for like theory and composition and uh, played trombone in high school, which, uh, you know, that's not a particularly great instrument if you want to make a living either. But um, uh, it was when I was at college at, uh, at Colorado University in Boulder that punk rock hit big time. And, um, and that was the music that made me want to be mm. a musician full time. So uh, I think I started writing some of the songs that became uh, the first uh, EP that I recorded, I Want to Be a Clone, uh, right as I was finishing up college. And I was really influenced, especially by uh, punk rock, in England, and The Clash would be probably the mm. biggest influence. And uh, so I would uh, typically write the songs, write out charts, but I couldn't really play anything. I, I had, had to pass piano proficiency to get my degree, and I just barely passed it. And so, uh, so I'd run out of studio and bring in musicians and essentially produce uh, my own demos and... Um, and eventually that led to a recording contract with Sparrow, which was a mm. Christian record label. is still around, I think. So what what would you say was your breakout uh, work? Was it the first that I Want to Be a Clone? Yeah. And it actually, uh, the, the signing happened. Um, a friend gave me a, a two-song slot at... Uh, this big uh, event that would happen in Estes Park, Colorado, every summer. It was like a gathering of uh, of uh, Christian musicians from across the country. And uh, he put me on to do a couple songs at lunchtime, and I assembled the band. It was actually the first time I'd performed live. And, uh, uh, and it, you know, amazingly it went over. It wasn't, it didn't really have a ready parallel, certainly in kind of uh, the Christian music world at the time. And this guy that signed me, Billy Ray Hearn. Uh, I'm not sure that he fully got the music, but he could see that it was getting a reaction, and he was kind of an adventurous guy anyway. He liked mm. to try new things, so uh, that's how it came about. And the reason it was an EP was he didn't want to risk all that money on a full 
album. So we figured we'll dip our toe in and do a six song EP. So at at that time in the Christian music landscape, were you were you considered controversial or different or kind of on your own? Or were yes, you- yeah, that would be true. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have any. Uh, yeah, well, it just it I mean, did just you, wasn't did you a thing. Feel that you, did you feel that you were controversial, or is that just the reaction that your music got? I mean, I knew that I knew that what I was writing was not uh, didn't have any easy parallel within the Christian music world at the time. Um, I didn't look at it as I mean, I wasn't writing it to be controversial, but it was satirical, and that really didn't have a lot of parallels either um so uh i wasn't surprised when it raised some eyebrows but uh you know it was i I think it was honestly more the, the style was problematic for some people and certainly the content the lyrical content and uh the kind of satirical bent of the lyrics made some people upset now, did you set out to be a part of the Christian music thing, or were no. you, you were just, I'm a musician, I want to make... Yeah, when I started, um, I was s- still in school, and uh, I was, uh, it, the, the guy that cut my hair was in Boulder, and, um, you know, like with any good barber, you, you know, you just get to know him after a while, they make conversation, and uh, he always wanted to know what I was doing, and... So, you know, I told him I was working on some music. He said, well, can I hear it? Said, sure. So I gave him a tape, and he said, well, I, there's this other client of mine that just moved out here from L.A. He used to run publishing at Warner Brothers, and um, can I play this for him? And he was running a bookstore now. I guess he wanted to get out of the L.A. kind of rat race as he saw it. Uh, I said, yeah, sure. And he listened to it, and he really liked it. So he set up meetings for me to meet with uh, an A&R guy, I think Warner Brothers and at Arista and uh, maybe another place. And I was thinking, well, you know, sure, that sounds good. (laughs) So I go out to L.A. and I have the meetings and they listen to the music. And for the most part, the reaction was the same. It's like, wow, you know, I like the sound of this because it was kind of a punk new wave hybrid. And that was still, you know, fairly, fairly new and fresh uh, at the time. And, uh, but they would, but they, these lyrics, like, they're like, they're kind of like church Christiany, but they're not really churchy. But like, you know, like I don't know. I think I think our, people would like the music, but it feels like these lyrics might offend our audience. Hmm. So I thought, okay, well, uh, maybe I should meet with Christian record labels. So I met with the two big ones at the time. And their reaction was, uh, we don't like your music, and your lyrics would offend our audience. <laughs> so that kind of summarized, you know, pretty much where I've lived the rest of my life. Well, it's, it's interesting that you would still find that success and that audience within those two. I mean, maybe it's because you have kind of that crossover thing in a way. Right, would, yeah. Would you consider yourself the David Byrne of Christian music? Well, I would love, I would love that <laughs> analogy. That just came to my, my mind. <laughs> I like where you're going with that. I, <laughs> you know, I would not claim that for myself. Although I will say, the only guy I've ever gotten an autograph from was David Byrne. I nice. saw him at a music video conference, and it's like I don't care. I'm getting his autograph. <laughs> 
Um, so wh- why do you think that you were still able to have a career in that space? Well, part of it is the guy that signed me, Billy Ray Hearn, was like a visionary. He, you know, he had signed other acts that other labels probably wouldn't have touched. And he was willing to let it be what it is. Like he was just hands off, you know, mm. give me the album. We'll promote it. Hey, why don't you make a video for it as well? You know, we'll do that. And he was just always up for trying stuff. And so that makes a big difference. I, you know, I think one of the challenges uh, Christian music currently has, and it's probably had for a while, is that <clears throat> they uh, they think they know what their audience wants. And so they make sure that everything goes through their kind of filter. Yeah. And Billy Ray was just up for what, whatever you want to do, mm. you know. <laughs> and and you as the artist weren't thinking, how do I fit what I do into this thing? I'm just I do what I do, and right, see where... yeah. Because well, I mean, what's the fun in that? Yeah. You know? And then and part of it too is that there are artists who were like really geared towards whatever I do. My goal is commercial success, right? And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, that just was not that was not my end game. I just mm. wanted uh you know, I wanted to write these songs and express what was in there and uh and and I just didn't see why why it would be fun to you know sound like everything else. So mm. uh and of course I had a lot of help getting there with some great musicians and producers and and all that stuff but uh it's fair to say that I always had I always had the call right mm-hmm. I wasn't I was never in a situation where it's like I don't know do you like this song can I put this on can I not put you know that was very hands off which I I later found out was not typical was it possible even though your label was a Christian label, could you have made music and released it in other places for the general audience to kind of catch on to? Well, that ultimately ended up being the the, the problem because uh, at that point there was no kind of ceiling. We didn't know Christian music was still enough in its infancy and, say, Sparrow Records was enough in their infancy that they didn't see any they didn't see any ceiling to it. Like, mm. who knows where this could go, right? Yeah. Um, but over the next few years, uh, Christian music kind of uh, coagulated into its own institution. And part of that had to do with, oh, around the mid to late uh, 80s, they had all these televangelist scandals and... Mm. Um, uh, a lot of the Christian labels responded by w- w- insisting that their artists made m- more specifically music for the church. Um, and I just wasn't interested in that. And, uh, uh, and, and at the same time, there's a frustration that happens when you think, well, you know, I didn't necessarily sign up for m- making exclusively church music. And uh, so that, that was the point when I decided to retire. I wasn't, mad and quitting i just thought retirement is probably a better word i was still in my 20s and retiring and uh uh and it was through that experience that i ended up forming this band with some friends who had also 
had a similar experience and were just ready to try something different, form a rock band, and let's get signed to a mainstream label and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. And that was ultimately what brought me to Nashville, was starting this band, Chagall Guevara, which was... uh, might have been our first mistake, but uh, you know, <laughs> that's the name of the band. We're sticking with it. <laughs> and and uh, so you've you've had a long career of producing other right. bands as well. And what what would you say is your what would people what would be the most well known thing that you project you were a part of? Yeah. Well, I I was working with a band Sixpence. None the richer uh, was going to be just be their producer, and then their they were on an independent Christian label that went bankrupt. So I ended up. Uh, funding the recording of the album in the hopes that I could get them a new deal. And it's a long story, but they were just so burned out that they didn't trust anybody. So I ended up starting a label to put their album out. And uh, and it, you know, was became, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which was a, was a fantastic experience for the first two yeah. or three years. And then it became a, a total drag having a, uh, it turns out that... <laughs> With that kind of success comes a lot of mo money mo problems, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that was a great experience, and in many ways, uh, that experience with Sixpence was uh, indicative of what I thought, you know, Christian labels could have done. Right. It was kind of it was kind of our thesis statement. See, yeah. we could be doing this, right? Yeah. Um, uh, because there are there were enough. Acts that have come, had come up through kind of Christian music, uh, just the system that were like, you know, they really needed to be heard by the rest of the world. I think yeah. it was maybe Mark Joseph who you've talked to before that I feel like maybe he was the one who first kind of used the farm farm team analogy, right? Where uh, Sixpence had already recorded a couple of really fine albums within a on a independent Christian label, they were ready to be heard by the world, and yeah. we were fortunate enough to be able to to prove it. Now, did you, were you par- a part of selecting Kiss Me as a single? <laughs> well, that's how what I that feel happen? bad, yeah, I feel bad about that, because, you know, I was just talking about how I had, like, you know, total freedom to do whatever I wanted to, and now I'm their producer, mm. and I remember we're, re- we're, we're, we're recording Kiss Me, and Matt, the band leader, is looking at me like I'm not feeling this, and I was like, "Oh no, no, this feels great. Trust me, you know." And uh, and ultimately, it would have been his call. Like if he decided, "No, I don't want this on the album," I would have gone along with that. But I was using all my powers of persuasion as a producer to say, "No, I think, I think you need to so have that, this song." So that there. song almost didn't almost didn't happen. Yes, wow. that's that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so were you were you shocked by the success of that song, or did you you knew it was good? well? Um, it, uh, my kind of right hand man at, at the at the label, uh, a guy named Stephen Prendergast, um, had come out of mainstream music, and he heard the song, and you know, I'm I'm I I know it feels good, I know it's yeah. I, I like it a lot, but Stephen's like that song is a hit, and and he never uh, never backed off on that assertion, and. Uh, and he ended up being the the, the uh, driving force for all the radio promotions, which is ultimately how it became a hit. Is because uh, you know it's like a Byzantine structure to navigate getting a song on the radio, mm-hmm. and uh, 
So he really deserves a lot of credit for making that song uh, the the hit that it always was, but you know, <laughs> it had to get on the radio first. Mm. And there was another guy who had made the deal for uh, Squint to exist. Uh, uh, well, a couple of guys at uh, Word Records because they had just gotten bought by a, another uh, entertainment conglomerate, and uh, but they were the ones who said, if you know, if you uh, do this deal under our umbrella, we will we will give you the money to make this happen, and. They stuck by their word for it was a long haul, hmm. you know. We worked it for almost a year, and the band was traveling all the time, and they were working like crazy. And um, uh, but they had two things going for them: one, they could really play, so they could set up in a uh, the lunchroom of a re- radio station. We'd buy pizza, and they could, you know, play a short set, acoustic set, and it's like, you know, the the radio station employees were like oh, wow, this is one of those bands that actually can play their instruments, right? Mm. And then they were just so nice, right? They were, like, nice and charming and never, you know, never short with anybody and just friendly. And I'm telling you, that those those two things, about probably even more so just the being nice people, it's like I think a lot of the radio stations felt like, you know, if we're going to do one nice thing this year, let's do it for this band because we like them. Mm. And so... Uh, and you know, then eventually, at one point, I think we had five different movies that wanted "Kiss Me" and to be their kind of uh, main soundtrack song. And uh, thankfully, I, I think I picked the right one. And that uh, exposure in this movie, "She's All That," was the thing that kind of put it over the edge. put it over the top. Yeah. So throughout your time working on music, uh, film was still always a thing that you we're doing with music videos but right. and and having the dream of making features as well yeah it was mostly music videos early on and then i just would kind of expand outward based on whatever opportunity came up so like in 1988 the greenbelt festival in england i'd i'd been there as a performer multiple times they wanted to do a documentary of the festival and they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I'd never done a documentary, but it sounded like fun. And so uh, I just took a, a little skeleton crew and made this 90-minute oh, documentary that turned out well and wasn't uh, didn't really – if you saw it today, it, doesn't, it didn't have a ready precedent at the time. It was just kind of freewheeling and, mm. you know, hopefully a lot of funny bits. And, and it just – I think it worked well. And then uh, I was working with this uh, Australian band, Newsboys, and um, uh, and they had become really successful. I was producing their albums and ended up doing uh, the video for one of their biggest songs, Shine. And then the for the new album, the label said, "Hey, if you got any ideas for like a something we could sell as a freestanding piece, we're open." And so I came up with the idea of like an out. What if you did like a mini movie mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know, it'd be like just an hour long comedy using a lot of these songs. So I wrote a script based on them, you know, inheriting a of a struggling circus, and uh, uh, it was my first time to really, really work with a longer narrative structure. When we're making music videos, you know, in my mind, oh, I'm creating these little mini movies, but really all you're doing is, you know, adding adding images to a pre existing soundtrack. So mm-hmm. once you start dealing with dialogue and uh, actors and all that stuff it becomes a whole another thing um but that project uh, turned out well and 
and then just timing wise when i started the record label i actually had money to make my first uh feature film and um i worked on the script with some friends on and off while i was running the record label and i'll never forget the the night i did a table reading of the script at my house and at the end of the table reading uh you know all the actors were really polite and thanks and i knew that you know, this movie was unfilmable, and if I did film it, it would be unwatchable. <laughs> and there was really nothing else to do. It was like, mm, let's let's put that aside because this is I don't I don't see how this is ever going to become anything after that reading. And that's when I shifted to uh, the idea. The first movie I did, which was uh, called The Second Chance, and it was really built on the idea of uh, write what you know. And uh, I I thought, well, what if you had like a kind of a black and white uh, buddy movie, uh, but you set it in a world of, a, of the church world. My dad was a pastor. I'd grown up, grown up in church. Uh, I thought it would be interesting, you know, especially moving to Nashville as well. You, I noticed a sort of a, 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 certainly more of a racial divide than what I'd experienced in growing up in Denver and certainly living in L.A., and so I thought, well, what if you had kind of a tale of two churches? You had a mega church and you had a, uh inner city urban church. Um, and, you know, what would happen if these two guys were forced to work together? And so that was the birth of that. And when we, I'll never forget, we did the table reading for that one. And at the end of that, it's like, oh, so this is what it feels like when a script works, Right. right. Um, so what was the story of the, the first screenplay? So it was a postmodern fairy tale, um, and it was going to mix uh, – I, I was working with a guy, Jonathan Richter, who had done uh, stop-motion animation and was fantastic and it had actually done the animation for this uh, song I'd, I'd uh, recorded called Cash Cow. And he had created this – I think he was still going to Otis Parsons at the time in uh, Pasadena and uh, the art school – and um, and he was he was just fantastic. And so uh, part of this original idea was based on knowing how good he was and what would what would it look like if you took live action and uh, and this stop motion animation and try to put them together. Not that that had never been done before, but it hadn't been done a lot. Mm. And you know, in my head, it was a really good idea, but I just I don't I I don't think I knew enough about how to turn it into a, a screenplay that worked mm. and yeah, I think it, it, it was probably too ambitious it was definitely too ambitious for the the skills that I had at the time uh, particularly as a writer what was that you know was that a hard thing to just drop or was it because of seeing that rea- that table read and you felt it was like okay I know this isn't the thing so I can let yeah you. yeah I've I've recognized uh, sadly later in life than I should have that I'm mostly driven by humiliation the fear of humiliation and so there wasn't that hard of a thing to drop just because I did not want to experience the humiliation of utterly failing at something (laughs) and there was what you know when you realize that at the script stage it's that flawed you know I mean that could it have been fixable Um, you know maybe but We'd already actually started the animation of it, and the animation was looking great, but, you know, the animation wasn't going to save a story that wasn't working.
Where did the money for Second Chance come from? Yes. Well, uh, a third of it came from a second mortgage on my house, which I don't recommend. And the other two thirds came from a, a company based in Nashville who were wanting to get into uh, film finance and it ended up being their first project. And um, But really the, the, the key to it was uh, my longtime collaborator, Ben Pearson, who was also the cinematographer on just about everything I'd done up to that point. Um, he was friends with Michael W. Smith and had done you know, some photo shoots with him and maybe a video, even a video or two. And he just mentioned while we were, because Ben had worked with me on the failed prior project, uh, St. Gimp, and I have to clarify, the, the, the project's problems were not his fault, they were my fault. <laughs> but um, uh, as we're talking about, you know, what, what's next? He just mentioned that Michael had always wanted to act, right? And so I kind of kept that in the back of my head as we started developing this new project. And then it got to the place where, well, let's see if Michael can do that or not. Because if, if he could do it, he's actually a name that could possibly bring financing to the project. Right. So we, we worked with him for a day. And, um, you know, I think it's fair to say he's not like a, a natural actor. There's some, who was the guy I saw recently, a musician that was just like fantastic. Like, you know, there's certain hip hop and rap artists that are just like, well, of course they're good actors because that's essentially what they were doing before. Right. Michael was not that person, but at the end of the day, we felt I, I felt like he could do an enhanced version of himself and and do it without looking too self conscious. Mm -hmm. And so, really, Michael's involvement was how we got the rest of the money for it. And he ended up being a great collaborator, you know. And I think uh, as I look back on the movie. There are there are scenes that he's great in, and the scenes where he looks maybe a little stiff was really my fault for you know not giving him an activity or you know doing the things that more seasoned directors would have known to do. So, but uh, and and the, his co-lead, a guy in town named Jeff Obafemi Carr, the 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 black lead, um, was also fantastic and really worked well with Michael too. So that made a big difference. So. Uh, obviously, that story and that film would would be for a Christian audience, and yes. you kind of knew that, right? In we did, but the problem was, um, I just assumed. Yeah, I made certain assumptions that weren't necessarily true, or, or at least ended up not being true with in the circumstance that we ended up in. One of them was. Um, you know that I, I didn't see how we could do a movie uh, set in this. Primarily takes place in this, you know, inner city, predominantly black church, and the pastor there is encountering the stuff that you would expect him to encounter in that milieu. And uh, so there was just I didn't see any way that you could do that movie free of any kind of language. Mm -hmm. And I ultimately was surprised at how big of a deal that ended up being mm -hmm. that uh you know you it was very it had it was in my mind very mild language but it needed it for any sense of realism and and that i mean there were people that just flat out well, well i'm not going to see that yeah so 
you know, it was it was certainly kind of more uh, it had more of an edge than other faith based movies at the time. Um, but there was never any doubt that that's what this was. Hmm. And so when you're you were deciding what your first feature would be, were you thinking like, okay, okay I'll go into the faith based thing, or like why why would it why was it different from how you thought about your music? Right. Well, in that situation, I th- again like films were so in their infancy, it was almost like being back when I started off as a recording artist, like. Uh, it wasn't an institution at that right. point, right? Yeah. So we finished the movie, and I think uh, Lionsgate uh, was interested, and Sony was interested, okay. and um, but and we ended up making the deal with Sony because it was a better deal. But as it sort of wound through the system, uh, I think it became frustratingly, certainly it ended up becoming more of like, well, this will be, we need to market this specifically to the church, yeah, which was sort of frustrating to the point where they didn't even want to do like a, a trailer, even though it was going to be a theatrical release. And, you know, that was a, that was a, <laughs> it was an argument that I thought was insane to even be having, but I lost that argument. Huh. And so we ended up making the trailer ourselves. Uh, and, and then I think they felt like, uh, I felt like it could play really well with the black audience and they were like, they just strongly disagreed. And, um, you know, the same company recently did, what's the movie with uh, the war room? Yeah. Which I've not seen the movie, but hats off to them. It was a, they tapped into, yeah, it was white filmmakers (laughs) using a black, uh, uh, black cast and, and, you know, did great business, but, Again, this was so new and early at the time that, you know, I, 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 I certain, it's, you know, and well, and there's money, there's a lot of money involved too. It's, yeah. You know, it's a, a, an album, we did this Sixpence album for 50,000 bucks, which now seem, even seems like a lot of money. That was nothing back then. Um, but, you know, a, a low budget movie was $1.2 million. So the amount of money at risk ends up being much greater so do, do you think it is all about how a product is sold as opposed to what the content actually is like do you think you could have there could be a story the same story of second chance uh and it and it be um sold to a non-christian audience just as a good story right like is would that even be possible or would it because it's about two churches automatically no. Right. Uh, you know, I'm going to speak on something that I've not seen yet, but the new, there's a new HBO comedy that uh, I've seen ads for, and I can't remember the name, but but it's about a stand-up comedian. Yeah, Pete Holmes. Um, right. The couch surfing thing. I can't remember what it's called either. Is that what, is that what it is? Something but evidently like that, yeah. he's, he plays like a, used to be like a Christian comedian. This is his character, right? Well, I mean, it's based on his real life. He oh, and he's he grew that, that's actually as, what he is as a, a Christian. Interesting. And I don't know if he is. Yeah, uh, right. Anymore, but he went to a like a Christian school and got married very young, and then he ends up uh, getting a divorce, and it's him like couch surfing with different comedians as he's like in this like really low time of his life after 
gotcha. uh, divorcing from his wife. Yeah. So well, I'm, anyway, I, yeah. I'm, have you seen it? I haven't seen it. No. I'm really anxious to see but, it. Yeah, because I think that's a that's a fascinating uh, premise, and it's Judd Apatow, and yeah. um, but I'm I'm I would love to see how they did that, and you know if my image of what it is actually ends up being mm-hmm. what it is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think you can, you can, every once in a while a movie comes along that just threads the needle and manages to do it. But now, kind of faith-based film is so institutionalized that it's tricky doing something that doesn't fit neatly within that uh, that structure. Yeah. And so, you know, there are, Lars and the Real Girl was an awesome movie, you know, navigated that really beautifully, but there's not, sadly, there's whole, not a whole lot of examples of it at yeah. this point. And so with your second film, Blue Like Jazz, it was kind of the same <laughs> same situation, right? You have a, a book that was very popular in the Christian community. I don't know if it was popular in general, but I mean, it was very. Uh, it was yeah. I mean, it was a, like a a huge bestseller, like yeah. one point three million copies. Yeah. And when we made the when I made the deal with Don for uh, to option the book, it was not popular. It hadn't hit the New York Times bestseller list or anything like that. But it was it, even at that point, it was starting to get a reputation you know it had a buzz to it so how how did that come about how did you connect with him uh we i think i just finished the second chance and was looking for my next project and a friend gave me the book to read and uh over christmas and it's like uh it's not a book you would put down and think oh i see this movie in my head it's like a as Don Miller, the author, would describe it as like almost like a series of essays, and even mm-hmm. the essays were kind of stream of consciousness. Yeah. But there was enough of a narrative thread of just the idea of a guy growing up in a really conservative kind of Southern Baptist environment in suburban Houston, and then going to Portland, Oregon, and going to Reed College, and just the extremes of that experience yeah. that I thought would be interesting. And frankly, had a lot of similarities to. We were talking about. It. I yeah. went to Biola as a freshman, um, and then went to Colorado University in Boulder, and that was a similarly head-turning experience, right? right. So I thought I thought I understood the story, and um, and in the, the, the probably the most famous scene in the book is this uh, scene that takes place at the end of the school year, and uh, they have a big kind of uh, end of school year party uh, that's. Uh, you know, sex, drugs, and, and dance music, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and he and some friends build a, a confession booth during the middle of, of all this, and then they kind of flip the script on the confession booth. And I love that scene. And when I pitched Don on making it into a movie, uh, it's like I want I want to turn this into a movie. I want that to be the end of the movie, and we'll work backwards from there. And um, uh, he had just had just come to town for a, a, a reading, um, so I met him at the afterwards. Uh, the guy who organized it kind of introduced us, and Don was familiar with my career in music, so I think that probably helped a little. And uh, and the movie was just that opening that weekend, so he uh, 
went back home to Portland, saw the movie over the weekend, uh, The Second Chance, and then called me up on Monday and it was like, yeah, I, I, I like that movie a lot. I, I'd like to do this. Mm. But his request was, can I work on the screenplay with you? Mm. And, you know, as you know, the answer would typically be uh, no. That would not be a good idea. <laughs> there's no way that there's no way that turning your memoir into a screenplay is not going to involve a lot of changing. Right. Yeah. And it's your story. Right. Yeah. So the only way this works is if we've got, you know, if you trust, trust me enough to take the essence of that and turn it into something that people would want to see in a movie theater. Um and Don was like, couldn't have been more gracious, but, you know, he pushed back a little and said, well, you know, I, I, I realize that. And I, and I realize that you would need to have, you know, the final sign off, but I just, it sounds like fun. And, and I, so then, the, you know, you know, you start doing the calculations in your head. So if I say no, does he decide maybe I don't want to, you know, what do I do? And so I said, okay, let's do this. Um, why don't we try this as an experiment? But you need to at least have a vocabulary for screenwriting. So why don't you go to Robert McKee's story seminar? It was going to happen in a few weeks in L.A. And um, uh, and he was like, yeah, that sounds good. And so uh, so he went to the story seminar and loved it. And I, I think probably in many ways changed kind of the trajectory of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And then we went to work on turning it into a... Uh, screenplay and um uh and i i mean and the whole experience was was pretty epic in in both the good and bad ways of that we had a great time writing the screenplay you know i think he learned a lot about uh how movies are structured but the, even more important uh he decided during the process of us writing this movie because we had to change so much to turn it into a screenplay at one point he was like, well, why can't I use this scene from my life and this scene from the book? And it's like, yeah, because I, you know, those aren't movie scenes. Those are, those would, those are die in a, on a screen. That's, I'm not interested in watching two people debate politics in a pub, you know, or two people discuss spirituality in a coffee shop. Like stuff has to happen. And he decided, uh, okay, well, so that part's boring, that part's boring. Next time I should just live a more interesting life and then we wouldn't have to change anything to turn it into a movie. And that ended up being his next book, book yeah. which is a really good book. It, uh, I've reread it recently and it's yeah. like it, it it reminded me of all the things that I saw him do while we were making while we were writing the screenplay. He just started living in a much more interesting life during that process. And um uh and we finished the screenplay, you know, six, nine months later. I sent it out to some people just people, professionals that I respected to get their opinion and, and some readers. And I just got back like uniformly, like not just positive, but like really positive reaction. Um, uh, so I thought, well, this is going to be easy. And in the meantime, the book had become like this big bestseller. It ended up being in, uh, on the New York Times bestseller list for like 43 weeks. Wow. And I just thought, well, this is going to be easy. Yeah. And I was just completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think the big... Um, the big error that I made was I I assumed that logically people that knew about the book or even had read the book that they would realize that you can edit certain things out of the book but if you don't 
present a truthful experience of what it would be like to be at Reed College as a freshman, you know, that's going to look ridiculous. Right. It would be almost like, you know, the, the, the Second Chance movie was set in an urban church, but if we had set it on the streets— we couldn't have gotten away with even what we did because it was in a church setting, right? You 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 pick your setting and then you have to go with what that setting gives you. And so there was just no way to do a, a sanitized version of that story in a movie. Um, you could the big question we had was could we even could it even be PG thirteen? How, how do we not make this R rated? And we you know we. Scaled it back. I think the social network had just come out, which was rated PG-13. And so I thought, well, if they can do that, we can do it. And mm. uh, But there's only so much you can do. You have to tell that story reasonably truthfully. And I just assumed that there were enough fellow Christians that had, that would, you know, the, the kind that would want to invest in movies that would believe in that. And, and I was totally wrong. <laughs> I was, I was still. I, honestly, I'm still kind of shocked. It still doesn't doesn't make sense to me that it was three years of trying to raise money hmm. and utterly failing. And you know, the only reason we were finally able to make it is a guy a, a guy who came on early in uh, in the Northwest came on as a as an investor, and he was a great encouragement all the way through. And then the Kickstarter campaign, which just happened out of sheer desperation and was not something that was even my idea. Um, mm. And the Kickstarter campaign was the thing that, you know, put it over the top and, and actually gave it a, a second wind, even PR-wise. And the Kickstarter, because the Kickstarter campaign was the biggest at the time, right, for a film? Yeah. Is it still? It was. No, no. No, no it's, it's, it's when surpassed a long, long since then. But I think the Kickstarter founders would probably tell you if you ask them that the Blue Light Jazz campaign was when they realized, oh, wow, I think we got something here. Hmm. Just because it it blew past all their other projects at the time and, you know, became their biggest project ever. And, of course, since then, uh, it's been surpassed many times. So the difficulty in raising the money, do you think – the the people who were saying no then would they say yes now well are they are they the same people who didn't go see the movie or didn't make it as well, successful as that's a it really should good, have been that's a really good point i think that it was uh i you know and you could make a perfectly good argument that was it was my mistake that you know possibly i should have just listened to all the people that were saying no because they knew that uh, this would be such a hard sell. Yeah. Um, there were things that happened during the during the publicity uh, campaign, which you know was three or four months, um, that were like crazy. You know, like uh, uh, I, I kind of hate to even remember all this, but I we were working with a really great firm that I'd worked with before on the second chance on PR they were excited about the movie and then you know they informed me they couldn't work on it anymore and it was like why and they didn't want to come right out and say it but it turned out that the executive producer of uh facing the giants um had forbidden anybody 
to work on Blue Light Jazz or they would never work with them again, right? What? Oh, no, I know. And that was like such a uh, such a shocker to me um, that, uh, you know, I, I was really ticked off at the time. And in fact, it turned out that the Kendrick brothers, I don't think were necessarily uh, – supportive of that move and you know one of them even called me later and uh a really gracious call and just said he was really sorry that that came down that that was not coming from them and i i completely believe that um but uh it kind of was indicative of how threatened the sort of christian music or christian movie establishment was of blue light jazz for Mm -hmm. Reasons that are that that part is surprising to me, but on the well, on the other hand, I guess it shouldn't be because that's what happens when something becomes institutionalized, um, and even the people that had worked on uh, the Second Chance, uh, some of them were like doing the same thing, like actively campaigning against Blue Light Jazz as if that was going to threaten their business mm. model or something. I don't know. It was a it was really bizarre situation Hmm. and um uh but on the other hand you could say okay so so show me the show me show me something like blue like jazz that that we had no precedent you know what i'm saying yeah like we couldn't point to oh it's like this movie that's gone before right right and so we really were in uh and just like an unknown place you know one of the happiest days of my life was found out we get into south by southwest film festival and that i think probably was a first for like a faith-based movie yeah which we we never we never wanted to call ourselves that but we also knew that i mean you know it's based on blue light jazz like that's that's the that's the world we were in um and so you know that was a blast when we went to south by southwest and got shown at a big theater and premiered there and uh, you know it was a the jokes were all playing it was just a great experience mm. but it it lands in a very odd place right. and you know i think one of the sobering things for people like us who are christians who want to make movies that uh speak to a broader audience is so you know where are those movies where are they (laughs) what are the ones we can point to and say it's like this right um so are you are you happy with the movie is it the movie you wanted to make it's definitely the movie i wanted to make and um it's funny i guess i woke up this morning thinking about some of the scenes in it it's like oh yeah that was actually that was pretty good like that whole bit with the community cup factory that was you know that was good, and the robot invasion. It's like there were a lot of great, uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of great set pieces in the movie, and was certainly wildly ambitious for the money that we had. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, like you know, there's always stuff that yeah. I'd love to fix. So, um, but basically, the problem was it didn't work for Christians and it, and it didn't work for secular audiences. So it kind of got lost. Yeah. And if, and in fact, we just didn't have money, you know, it'd be like, it would be like having the sixpence album, uh, and having, you know, like a few thousand dollars to market it. Like we just didn't have, 
the money to go there. Uh, well, we had a great distributor, Roadside Attractions, you know, who I would work with again in a heartbeat and loved working with them. But, you know, the, yeah. the budget that we had was a budget we had. The, the P&A money that we had was limited, you know, you do 150 prints, you know, you hope for the best. And I think the one thing that Roadside would say that that was my hunch, but again, I I, I didn't push this hard because I wasn't sure. I said, man, I think this movie will play better in with uh, urban audiences and in art house theaters than it will play in suburban theaters. And, but they're... You know, the advice they were getting is, oh, you got to go, you got to hit the suburbs hard. And sure enough, like, that was the case everywhere. Like, the the, the downtown yeah. art houses was where it really played, and the suburbs, it did not go well. Mm. I assume you would have thought, like, okay, because it's a Christian book, Christian audience is going to be there no matter what, because it's yes. a Christian book, and then let's we can play more to people who are not aware of the book because we're going to get those people anyway right and somehow that yeah i don't think it be, <laughs> yeah i mean i think people that really like the book and that saw the movie i think for the most part they were happy with it because well the other thing is you know in retrospect i probably wouldn't do this again we had this kickstarter campaign that was historic and so my thought was you know what we need to say thank you and let's do a tour where all the people that we we hadn't even promised this in the Kickstarter campaign, but let's bring the people out and let them see a sneak preview of the movie. And so we went on a tour and showed it in like 30 cities and, you know, packed the house every night. And in retrospect, I think, gosh, if all those people, if we would have just waited and had all those people buy a ticket, yeah. you know, we would have added another million bucks onto our box office. Right. So um, I probably would, wouldn't do that again, but... Uh, you know, it's all hindsight. So do you think from that experience when you're thinking about the next film that you make, is it is the thought, you know what, I'm going to just try and make something for one or the other? Or do you still think there might be a possibility that there can be that, that middle ground that just no one has figured out yet? Yeah. That's a great question. Um, the... Uh, the sunshiny positive side of me wants to say I I'm sure it can be done, and and I think it you know it will happen eventually. I had some friends who uh, they made a comedy. Um, believe me, believe me. Yeah, do you see that movie? Mm -hmm. So they made good. this movie called Believe Me, and I saw it. Uh, I think we screened it at Don's um, storyline conference. And I thought it was really well done. Yeah. It was genuinely funny, like, uh, you know, well-directed, good actors. It was good, right? Yeah. And it should have done, you know, I, I thought that should do business. And, you, you know. even had Nick Offerman. Had Nick it, Offerman and, in it, right? Yeah. And, I, you know, their experience, I think when I, when I met with some of the filmmakers, Will and um, – it was right at the point where they were really nervous that, you know, that didn't, it wasn't going the way they had hoped. And, uh, and it just, you know, it just bums me out. That, that movie should have had an audience. Yeah. So 
you know, is it a is it generational change that has to happen? You know, is it? I don't know. That's a that's a really good question. Well, you were t- talking about the institution that has been created. Do you maybe as that or if that kind of matures or expands or crumbles, <laughs> you know, like if it if it changes right. in a way that it's. I mean, I think most people in who talk around these kind of things would say they don't want there to be such a thing as right. a faith-based yeah, genre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you looked at it in terms of, you know, if, if Christian music was a good parallel, which the analogy works in some places and not so well in others, but, you know, the Christian music industry now is smaller and it is church music. Like, you know. Yeah, it's kind of. Yeah. It's. Uh, Focused in and exactly. become a very specific right, thing. Right, right. And that kind of makes sense. But there were a whole host of successful acts sort of during its kind of middle period mm-hmm. that they were finally, you know, they were making good music. It was well produced and um, and it, you know, the, it reached a really large audience within kind of the Christian community. But then as the industry tried to, uh, how would I say, like – funnel that and institutionalize that even more. Oh, this is working, so let's make it more like this. Mm. You got to a place where a lot of bands and, you know, Squint, frankly, was able to sign bands. They just had no interest in being on a Christian music label because they didn't want, had nothing to do with their faith that just had to do with their art, right? They didn't want to be associated with it because they didn't want to go through that sort of... uh, 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 process of taking off all the edges and so uh you know i i think with i think think most people who are christians who want to be filmmakers who are serious about their craft are probably not even thinking in terms of making a faith-based film because they fear that very process yeah and so they would just you know what's what's a movie I can make that can succeed on its own terms, um, and uh, and is there is there a way to make a go of it? And that's I, probably I would say like the the Christian audience will not be there for something that has bad content, but I don't think it works the other way where a secular audience will not be there for something that has good content. <laughs> yes. They'll, the they'll watch things that don't have bad things in them. So right. it's not a matter of like, oh, if I want to make something that's clean, then it's going to be only for the church. Right. But it is true. If I want to make something that's not clean, it's it not going to be for the, for the church. church. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. So I think it just, it does come back to that first question of what, choosing the story you're going to tell and maybe you you can't tell that story because of that fact right you know yeah so that's why i feel like blue like jazz probably was doomed no matter what unless unless you went more into the like r-rated sex comedy thing which right that would have been probably even greater disaster right right Yeah, I mean, you know, we had those discussions early on uh, just because, you know, nothing was off the table. and But 
when it starts going into a sex com sex comedy, it's like I don't want to make that, right? You know, and yeah. I don't. I, frankly, I don't even want to put actors in that position, right? So, um, uh, so that was that was never a, yeah. a practical consideration. I, I guess I'm, I'm saying you you made the best choice of all the bad. Like there's, yes. there, I don't think there was a way to make. I can tell you every reason work. why we made the choices that we made. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't need you know. That doesn't mean that that. Uh, I, I, I yeah, I think. I, there are so many bad versions of blue light jazz that could have been out there, right. and frankly, I, I I heard some of them. I got pitched some of them. Right. Right. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Can we go back to talking about satire? Because yeah. uh, satire is an interesting thing when it comes to coming from the Christian community too, because it's. I think there's a lot of people who would see it as my wife being one of them. It's satire is so mean that it shouldn't come from a Christian, right. you know, or yeah. the, that's the general thought. So what are your thoughts on Christians in satire and why there isn't more? Should there be more? Like what? what yeah, right, right. Well, it, you're, you know, your wife has a good point. Um, the analogies I used to pull out back in the day when satire was under the under the examining glass was uh, things like, you know, you strain it and out and swallow a camel or uh, take the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Like using, you know, exaggeration and hyperbole to make mm -hmm. a point. And even going back to the Old Testament and, uh, you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and, you know, they're trying to call down f fire on their altar and, you know, Elijah's just making fun of him, right? So I, I think there is a, a place for it, and I, I'm obviously comfortable yeah. with it. Um, but the best thing about satire is that you get to make a point, hopefully while people are laughing. And that's one of the things I love about comedy. And, uh, you know, even with The Second Chance, it was not a comedy per se, but all I, I, I'm embarrassed to say it, I would just... I watched it over and over again with an audience just to make sure that the jokes were landing. Like I was really concerned yeah. about whether the jokes were getting a laugh or not. Um, so I, I think it's, it's got, uh, you know, and I really need it now more than ever. Yeah. I, I was just thinking, I, I feel like if there was, if there was a, a Christian voice that was really smart and could be like the, the Colbert of, right. of, we that's that's someone that that's something we need that right is not i don't i don't mean politically right but a, i mean obviously politics comes into all kinds of things but just about the culture in general someone who could kind of make us laugh about the ridiculousness of so many things yeah. in our culture yeah. and has that that worldview but i wonder if like even the interesting thing about colbert is you have conservatives who love Colbert and think that he, what he's doing is making fun right. of liberals and liberals right. think he's making fun of conservatives and it works for both. And I right. wonder if there could be something similar from a, from a Christian perspective. Yeah. I don't know. I think there, I think there is, you know, Dean Battaglia, I don't know if you've talked to Dean before, but he's a longtime friend and a TV writer, primarily in comedy. And, you know, he started off in a Christian theater company in Seattle. And he, he talked about how he just wanted to, he wanted to hear real laughs, right? He didn't want to hear church laughs. He wanted to hear people 
laughing because something's genuinely funny. Yeah. And yeah, that's 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 what you want. It's but comedy is hard, right? Like the the more I do this, the more I realize, wow, comedy is way harder than anything else you could do. You just don't know until you try it out, and it's really hard in in uh, film because you don't have there's no chance to try it out ahead of time. Yeah, right? you don't have any immediate right. reaction. We did a new script I'm working on. We did a live reading, and so that's as close as I can get. We did a live reading. Most of the jokes were landing like really well, so now I feel way more confident. Before that, I had no idea if what we were doing was any good or not. And so, uh, but you know, back to Judd Apatow, um, he tests his movies over and over Crazy, again, yeah. and he records, his camera is focused on the audience, right. and then he cuts them based on how long the laughs are. You know, gosh, it's, comedy is hard. <laughs> <laughs> so what is, uh, what is next for you? What what are you working on now? Yeah, so if, uh, I'm working on a political comedy, and you know, really, how could you do a comedy, a, 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 a political movie these days, and not make it a comedy? <laughs> right. um, and uh, I'm working on it with Seth Worley, who okay. is a longtime friend, and uh, I think he's just a fantastic uh, filmmaker, and just moved to L.A. and um, and uh, you know, we'll see. What happens? It's, the script's just about done. I think it's good, uh, but you know, and then the money part, money raising part comes, and yeah. that's uh, soul sucking. And the problem is, if you don't want to get involved in that, you know, one thing that was never even an uh, option was trying to get Blue Light Jazz funded by some kind of a studio for no other reason than. You you have it's not your movie anymore, right? Once a once a studio takes over, you know, unless you're one of those sliver of people that get final cut, you don't decide when it's finished. Yeah, and um, uh, and I'm not against that idea. And there's a lot of great movies that are made within that system. But a movie like Blue Like Jazz, for example, that would not be something that would be wise to hand over it to somebody else I, I, I didn't think hmm. so uh, yes but but the process of raising money for movies is really really difficult that's the hardest part of the whole thing yeah um, one last question I like to ask about um, your what have been some of your favorite movies of the of the past year oh man the past year see the lobster mm-hmm. I saw that at at Cannes when it first came out. And I, yes, I love saying I saw it at Cannes. Um, <laughs> uh, I just love that movie. I've seen it probably four times. Mm-hmm. I saw it when I saw it at Cannes. Um, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a international audience watching it. And you remember that, uh, movie, uh, Cape Fear with Robert De Niro, the mm-hmm. remake yeah. where he's sitting in a movie audience and he's laughing like really loud and nobody else is laughing right. like that was me at the lobster <laughs> like i'm laughing really loudly and no one else is laughing yeah but um uh yeah hmm. that's probably and then there's another movie called hunt for the wilder people mm-hmm. that uh i just love that movie too very different you know it's almost like a family comedy but uh oh gosh i just think that movie's magic highly recommended and you know there's like i man i thought la la land was awesome um, and that he pulled that off with uh, uh, making a modern musical that's not based on anything else, and you know, 
making it that tuneful and, you know, borrowing not just from Hollywood musicals, but from some of those uh, great uh, Jacques Demy musicals. Yeah. I just loved it. And he's so. 32. And he's 32. That's, that's mean, what's crazy, because Whiplash was equally fantastic. Oh, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, very impressive. <laughs> and, you know, props to uh, to uh, Scott Derrickson for Doctor Strange. Like, I probably like that m- movie more than any other superhero movie I've ever seen. I thought he did an awesome job on that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, there's a lot of good movies being made. And... Uh, and that's what keeps you going is, you know, you see ones where they do thread the needle and, uh, and, and they somehow make something great, especially when they, when they pull it off on a budget or it's an independent movie. You know, when you, when you see it done right, it's, it just gives you hope, which is, you know, not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> so, I've got friends who should probably just, you know, just abandon hope. <laughs> but this this movie making compulsion is uh, kind of a unique uh, sickness, and uh, <laughs> and once you once you get that in your head, uh, as you know, there, there's just there's few things that are harder in the arts world than pulling something like that off. And I, you know, I have, having done it now, I have much greater respect for even people who make bad movies. It's like, hey, they got it done, you know? Yeah. Just getting something done is hard enough. <laughs> <laughs>